That was sweet. Sweet time of worship. I'd like you to open your Bibles tonight to Luke chapter 2, page 1180, if you're using a Bible under the seat in front of you, Luke chapter 2, and then we're going to go to Matthew chapter 2, and then we're going to go back to Luke chapter 2, you with me? Luke chapter 2, then Matthew 2, then back to Luke chapter 2. So if you want to put a bookmark in both those places, that'll be helpful. Fascinating topic in the Bible tonight. Let's go to the Lord in in prayer. Lord, as we have just sung, you are so good in so many ways. And you are so amazing. You are so great. In many ways, mysterious. And we love you for your goodness. We love you for your greatness. And your grace and your mercy. I pray that you would guide us. Speak to us from your word by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So have you ever wondered about Jesus, the Son of God, in his childhood? What was Jesus like as a two-year-old? What was Jesus like as a first grader? What was he like as a teenager going through puberty. Was he a super baby? Was he a super toddler, a super teenager? Was he like that little baby in Incredibles 2 with super powers? And did he do miracles? Did he do tricks like that? Um, There's actually an ancient document uh, that's been found early on in church history, and it's called the Infancy Gospel of Thomas. It's a heretical book. It's a Gnostic book. It was never embraced as scripture. But it's a document that records all these fanciful stories of supposed miracles that Jesus did as a child. For instance, as a small boy, it was said that he um, created 12 little balls of clay and then turned those balls of clay into sparrows, and they flew off. There's another story that says his younger half-brother James was bitten by a poisonous snake and Jesus healed him from that snake bite. There's another story where Jesus is in the carpenter shop with Joseph and he miraculously stretches out a piece of lumber so Joseph can finish an item of furniture. All those are fanciful, pure legends. There are no miracles in Scripture recorded when Jesus was a child. In fact, in the Gospel of John, it says that the first miracle he ever did was where? Turning the water into wine at Cana. So he probably did not do any miracles as a baby, a toddler, 
a teenager. But still, think about the Son of God developing as the Son of Man. The mystery of that. Did he know who he was and when did he know who he was? All of the uh, mysteries of that to contemplate. Well, there are only three passages in the Gospels that speak of Jesus in his childhood. And so let's see if we can learn anything about that from what we do have. And our first passage here is Luke chapter 2, verse 21. Let's look at it. And when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child... His name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So how old is Jesus in verse 21? He is exactly eight days old. All Jewish male babies were circumcised on the eighth day of life. And at that point, they were given their name formally. And so on his eighth day of life, Mary and Joseph had him circumcised and officially gave him the name Jesus. And they're obeying, remember, what the angels told them to name that baby when he was born. So on the eighth day of his life, he was circumcised. Look at verse 22. Now when the days of her purification according to the law of Moses, were completed. They brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Okay, there are two rituals being obeyed in those three verses. First, there is the ritual of purification for Mary. The very act of giving birth made a Jewish woman ceremonially unclean. And as being ceremonially unclean, she couldn't go to the temple. She couldn't be a part of any of those uh, religious gatherings in the temple. And she would also be secluded uh, for a number of days. She's ceremonially unclean. Now, if she gave birth to a baby boy, she was ceremonially unclean for 40 days. If she gave birth to a female, she was ceremonially unclean for 66 days. Now, guys, you be gentle with that. Don't give your sisters or wives a hard time for that. I have no idea why the difference was in that. But she was ceremonially unclean, and at the end of that time of uncleanness, she was required then to go to the temple and to offer sacrifices to the Lord 
so that she could become ceremonially clean. And they were required to offer a lamb of the first year as a burnt offering, and they were required to offer a pigeon or a turtle dove as a sin offering. Or, if you were dirt poor and you couldn't afford a lamb, you could offer two birds, either a pigeon or a turtle dove. Now, what did Mary and Joseph offer? What does it say in our text? A pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. What's that tell you about Mary and Joseph? They couldn't afford a lamb. They were dirt poor. Jesus, remember, was born into a family of poverty. So, in verse 22, how old is Jesus? He's 40 days old. He's a little bit over a month at this point. Okay, the other ritual that they did was the formal presentation of the firstborn son to the Lord in the temple. Jesus was their firstborn son, the one who opened the womb of his mother Mary. And the firstborn son was always given to the Lord. Way back in the Old Testament, the Lord said, Your firstborn son shall be given to me. Literally, the firstborn son of every family was to go serve the Lord in an official capacity. And then if you remember, later, God changed that and said that the tribe of Levi would be responsible for that. It would be the Levites who would formally serve the Lord. And so... To make up for that, every time a couple had a child outside of the tribe of Levi, they still had to bring their firstborn son to the temple, give him to the Lord, but then they redeemed him back for five shekels. But it was a formal ritual. And so that is what they have done with Jesus. They're from the tribe of Judah. They formally present him. And then they redeem him back for five shekels. Okay, those three rituals, circumcision, purification, and the formal presentation of the firstborn son. Why did they do that? Because they were Jewish. And as Jews... They had to keep every detail of the Jewish law of Moses. In verse 22, it says, When the days of her purification according to the law of Moses. They're a Jewish couple. They are obligated to keep every detail of the law of Moses. And that's what they did. And that leads to something very, very important that you need to understand about Jesus. Born as a Jew to a Jewish family. Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 4. When the fullness of time had come. God sent forth his son. Born of a woman. Born under the law. To redeem those. Who were under 
the law. Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, was born a Jew under the law of Moses, and so he was obligated to keep the law of Moses. And he kept the law of Moses. On his eighth day, he was circumcised. He was formally presented. He grew up keeping the law of Moses. He ate a kosher diet. He honored the Sabbath day. He probably went to the synagogue every single Sabbath day. When he gets to a proper age, he would make the annual pilgrimages to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Day of Atonement, Pentecost. Jesus grew up learning the Torah. He knew the Ten Commandments and he kept them. He knew all of the civil requirements of the Law of Moses and he kept them. Jesus, born under the law, kept the Mosaic Law. And I would also say this. He is the only Jew who has ever lived, who has kept the law of Moses perfectly. The only one. In fact, I think that's what he was getting at in Matthew chapter 5 when he says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law of Moses. Perfectly obeyed it in every detail. And it's a good thing because what happens if you break the law of Moses? In any detail. You're guilty of breaking all of it. And then you must be atoned for. And according to the law, you were atoned for breaking the law by sacrifice of an innocent substitute in your place. Remember in the Old Testament, it was animals. If you broke the law, you brought your sacrifice to the temple, you laid your hands on the head of the animal, signifying that your law-breaking, your sinfulness, is going to that animal, and then that animal would be sacrificed, and that blood atonement would be applied to you. Jesus never broke the law, never had to be atoned for. That's an amazing thing. Have you ever read through the Old Testament law? You ever seen all the details there? I get exhausted reading them. Jesus kept them perfectly. And by the way, remember this. According to Paul in the book of Romans, the law of Moses was an experiment of God for the benefit of all mankind, Jew and Gentile. 
God gave his people a law in the Old Testament, a law that was written down completely, no ambiguity whatsoever. Here's the law. Here it is, step by step by step. You have to keep this law step by step by step. And if you do, you're righteous. There could be no complaint that God wasn't fair, that God didn't give them any information. No, he wrote it down verse by verse, line by line. There's the law. Keep it. And if you keep it, you'll be righteous. Now, did they ever keep the law? Absolutely not. Nobody could do it. And so then the law prescribes the idea of a substitutionary innocent victim in place for those who can't keep the law. All that, God's way of saying that all human beings, whether they're under the law of Moses or not, cannot keep it. All human beings are sinful. All human beings are law breakers. The law was meant to prove to all of mankind that you're a sinner. That you can't keep it. And then to provide that picture of how someone gets atoned for. So, all mankind... Sinful, Jesus, perfect. All mankind, lawbreakers, Jesus kept the law of Moses perfectly. And as you know, when he grows up, he offers himself on the cross as the perfect, law-keeping, holy, sinless substitute. For us lawbreakers. Completing the picture of the law. He died for our sins and he rose again the third day. And here's what's so beautiful. The scripture in the New Testament teaches if you will admit that you're a sinner. If you will come to Jesus and you will place your faith in him. All of your sins are forgiven and his righteousness is credited To you. In other words, if you have given your life to Jesus Christ, if you have placed your faith in Him, you are now seen as somebody who perfectly kept the law of Moses in every detail. You are seen as somebody who has never committed sin. Isn't that beautiful? God makes you holy. God makes you righteous. Now, is that because you are? No, we've blown it. But we've placed our faith in Christ, who's the atoning sacrifice and the covering. And our faith in him unites us to him, so we're joined with him. It's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful principle. God's son was born under the law to redeem those who are under the law. Not only did he keep the law perfectly, but he died for those who couldn't. Incredible. Okay, turn to Matthew chapter 2. 
Let's look at another passage concerning the childhood of Jesus. Matthew chapter 2. Okay, now here in Matthew chapter 2, Jesus is no older than two years of age. It is likely that he's, he's, he's somewhere between uh, six months old and two years old in the text that we're about to read. And also notice this before we read. At this point, Mary and Joseph and Jesus are still in Bethlehem. They have not moved back to Nazareth. You'll read later in the text that when we meet them in Bethlehem, they're in a house. They're dwelling in a house. So it's even thought that perhaps they've planned on staying in Bethlehem, that that would be their home. All right. Verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, In the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen the star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Okay, there are two Christmas traditions that this kind of blows up for us. All right? When you set up your nativity scene on Christmas, a lot of times you have the three wise men right there at the manger scene. They weren't there at the manger scene. They come much later. So keep your wise men, but this year, when you set up your nativity scene, put them out in the backyard or perhaps four blocks away en route, okay? All right. The other tradition here is that there were three of them. We three kings, because they give three gifts. Probably not. There's probably not just three of them. In fact, there's probably well over a hundred of them. Some even estimate as many as 300 people. This is a whole company. This is a whole entourage of very powerful people that are coming from the east, three of them or more, definitely leading the company, and they're known as wise men. It's believed that they were from Persia. We know that they were astronomers or astrologers, and I would love to know the backstory on this, but somehow when Jesus was born on that night in Bethlehem, a star appeared, They saw the star, and they were able to somehow uh, equate that with the birth of a Jewish king. God allowed that to happen. And so they immediately set off. They want to find this new Jewish king, and they think, well, we'll go to Jerusalem, because Jerusalem's where all the most important Jews hang out. So they show up. And they say, who is born king of the Jews? And notice Herod's troubled by it, and all of Jerusalem's troubled by it. That's why I think there were more than three. You got a whole group of people. Who are these guys coming? Where are they coming from? And what is this talk about 
a new Jewish king. So they come to Jerusalem. Do you guys have any idea where we might find this king? Verse 4. And when he, Herod, had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now I find this totally interesting. Where is the Messiah supposed to be born? Herod calls the chief priests, the scribes, the religious leaders of Jerusalem. And what do they do? They know immediately, right? Oh, yeah, that's easy. The, the Messiah is supposed to be born in Bethlehem. And they quote Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Yeah, the prophecies say that he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Now, my question is, why didn't they go investigate it for themselves? Bethlehem's only five miles away. You would think that if you had this group show up looking for a newborn king they might at least go investigate for themselves, but they don't. And Herod, he also doesn't go investigate for himself, but verse 7, Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. That's important. When did you first see the star? He wants to get kind of a timing element in place verse 8 and he sent them to Bethlehem and said go search carefully for the young child and when you have found him bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also does Herod want to go worship that child no he wants intel verse 9 when they heard the king they departed And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. Now, when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. Now, that's miraculous. We don't know how that... The whole star thing. They saw something in the heavenlies that pointed to the birth of a Jewish king. They came to Jerusalem, and then it says they saw the star reappear. There there are some folks that believe there was this star, but then also, very possibly, the Shekinah glory cloud of God came down from where they were seeing the star, and they followed that right into the city of Bethlehem, and it points them right to the house where the two-year-old, or less, Jesus, is staying. Somehow. However that worked, they found him. Verse 11. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child. By the way, the word child is paideon in the Greek. That means small boy. It's not... Bethros, which means infant, 
as you find it in the nativity story. This is a small child. When they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, fell down and worshipped him. And when they opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now the language is clear. These impressive Persian kings worshipped a two-year-old. They opened their treasure box. They pulled out gold, frankincense, and myrrh. High price items. And they showed their allegiance and their reverence and worship to the Lord. Okay? Verse 12. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Don't go back to Herod. Go a different way. Verse 13, now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt and stay there until I bring you word for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt And was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. So in the middle of the night, Joseph packed up Mary and Jesus, and they snuck out of Bethlehem, and they went all the way down south to Egypt, and they stayed in Egypt until Herod died. Now, by the way, how did they finance that? They're poor. How did they get down to Egypt and how did they stay in Egypt? Gold, frankincense, myrrh, high costly items. Those kings actually gave them a very practical gift that they could actually use. So they spent time in Egypt. Verse 16. Then Herod... When he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old until under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Now that's got to be the most horrific event that you find really in all of the Gospels. Herod orders his soldiers Uh, This kid's got to be somewhere to or under. Sends his soldiers into Bethlehem and all the districts and destroys, kills every two-year-old or younger son. Horrific. Jesus and his parents would spend the next several months, possibly even years, in Egypt. And when Herod dies, they will come back And they will end up returning to Nazareth. And that's where he'll finish his childhood. But I I bring you to that story just so that you can see that there was controversy 
surrounding Jesus. Even as a, even as a toddler, controversy always surrounded him. Even at his birth, the scripture says he wasn't welcome in the inn. So he had to be born in a barn and wrapped in swaddling clothes and lied in a manger. Here is a two-year-old. There are some kings that worship him. They love him. They bow before him. But there's a leader who hates him, seeks to kill him. And there's religious leaders who are completely disinterested. Those groups of people surrounded Jesus at every stage of his life. When Jesus does grow up and does enter the public ministry, there were people that loved him, that bowed before him, that worshipped. There were people that hated him, wanting to destroy him at every opportunity. And then there was a crowd that was just disinterested. A lot of them very religious. They're too religious to have time for the truth. And I would say that that same kind of controversy still surrounds Jesus today. There are people who love him. I love him. Do you love him? And bow before him and acknowledge, yeah, you're the king of kings, the Lord of lords. And then there's people that hate him. And then there's people that are disinterested. The coming of Christ into this world was literally like a sword that divides people into camps. There are those who receive him and become children of God and are forgiven of all their sins. There are people that reject him. I pray every one of us here tonight are in that camp that have accepted him. Amen? And received him. Okay, back to Luke chapter 2. We have one more passage of Jesus in his childhood. And to me, this is the most fascinating one. Luke chapter 2, verse 41. All right. In this passage, Jesus is 12 years old now. And as I said, they have returned from Egypt. They are back in Nazareth. Verse 41 says, His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover... And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. Now, gang, I believe this was a very, very special trip for Jesus at 12 years of age. His family, they're devout Jews, year in and year out. They go to the temple, they leave Nazareth, they go to the temple, and they celebrate Passover every year. And there's no doubt that Jesus would accompany his family as they went but being 12 years old 
This is the first time that he gets more access to everything that's going on in the temple at Passover. It wasn't until 12 or 13 that boys were thought to have become men. In fact, they would go through the bar mitzvah. You've heard of that, right? Son of the commandment. Jesus is right at that age. And when they're recognized as men, when they've gone through that rite of passage, or even when they're very close, I believe it was at 12 years of age that Jewish males were allowed to go into the court of Israel in the temple. The outer court was the court of women. That's men, women, and children. Not till you were 12 could you go further in. And in the court of men, that's where all the teachers were. The teachers of the law. And that's where they're talking about law and debating theology and all of that. So this is a great moment for Jesus. He gets to go right into that inner court. And I think, honestly, I think Jesus was like, A kid going to Disneyland. I see him like that. This is when he experienced Passover as a human being. Like he's never experienced. Okay. Verse 43. So they go. Remember, it's a week-long celebration. Now they're coming home. Verse 43. When they had finished the days, as they returned... The boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem. And Joseph and his mother did not know it. But supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. Now, were Mary and Joseph horrible parents here? They lost Jesus. No. They weren't the only family that took the trip from Nazareth to Jerusalem. Usually, the whole village would form a company. And all of the families and everyone who was going to go, they'd travel like a convoy. And that's probably what had happened. And a lot of times, the women and children went up in the front and the men came in the back or vice versa. And so when they're returning home, it's a large group of people. Mary probably thinks Jesus is with Joseph. Joseph probably thinks Jesus is with Mary. But Jesus is back in the temple in Jerusalem. So you can understand how they they missed him. Now the other question here is, did Jesus disobey his parents? That's a pretty good question, huh? What's the answer to that? No. Can Jesus break the law? Can Jesus sin? No, he's the perfect lamb of God. And so what's happened? It's it's the mystery of this. This is a kid, a 12-year-old, losing track of time. This is the simple mistake of a kid. This isn't willful disobedience. Here's, I think he was just so into it. 
I think he lost track of time. Now think about that. The son of God who invented time, losing track of time like 12-year-olds do. Have you ever had a 12-year-old? Innocent childhood mistake. Okay. Verse 46. Now, so it was after that, after three days, they found him in the temple. Okay, now, why did it take him three days? First day they're going back, they discover he's missing. That's day one. Day two, Joseph and Mary running back to find him. Day three, they're searching for him in Jerusalem, and they find him in the temple. So they find him on the third day. So it was, after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. The 12-year-old. Picture this. He's with the bigwigs, the scribes the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. And he's having an adult conversation with them. Don't, 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 sometimes, some people picture this as Jesus takes over the class and he becomes the professor and they're all sitting at his feet. Don't, it's not that. It's that Jesus is seen as the star student. He's sitting with them. He's talking with them. They're amazed at his questions. They're amazed at his understanding. All right. So that's how his parents find him. Verse 48. So when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father... And I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. Okay. It's interesting. Jesus is sort of correcting his parents here. They say, why did you cause such anxiety to me and your father? And what does Jesus say? Now, I had to be about my real father's business. Okay, and then when he says, why did you seek me? In other words, why did you go all over town looking for me in Jerusalem? You should have known that I'd been in the temple. Doing my father's business. Okay, here's what I think happened, and I think it's important. I think this was a key moment. When did Jesus know who he was? When was the dawn of realization? When did Jesus know that he was God's son? Did he know 
that he was God's son as a baby in the manger? And I would say, yes, to the extent that a baby can know, which isn't much, right? Did Jesus know that he was God's son as a two-year-old? Yes, to the extent that a two-year-old can know. Did he know he was God's son as a 10-year-old? Yes, but to the extent that he could know as a 10-year-old. Now, this is different. This is 12. This is the rite of passage. This is leaving the age of innocence, becoming a man. I think it's here at the age of 12 when he fully realizes who he is. Now, I know that's kind of a hard way to think about it, isn't it? The mystery of the incarnation. The Bible teaches that Jesus learned obedience. That he really was a true child. He was a real baby. Jesus had to be taught that 2 plus 2 equals 4. Jesus had to be taught... The alphabet. Jesus had to be taught how to read and write. Jesus had to be taught how to use a tool and how to build things in a carpenter shop. I say that to you because you need to understand that he has experienced life just like human beings experience life. Only he did so perfectly. It's an amazing thing to consider. Okay, so if he comes to that dawn of realization at 12, what does he do in verse 51? It says, Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was what? Subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Now, to me, that's a mind blower. So now he realizes who he truly is, what he's going to do, what his mission is, and he goes back home with his human parents in full submission to them, being the perfect kid. And you could argue, folks, that he stayed in submission to his human parents for the next 18 years. Staying in Nazareth. Working the carpentry business. All of that. The Bible teaches, folks, that our Savior, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the Son of God who became man, is a high priest who can sympathize with us in every one of human experiences. We have a God who truly knows. That's important to know. He knows what it's like to be a three-year-old. 
He knows what it's like to be a teenager. He knows what it's like to be in charge of a business. He knows what it's like to try to make ends meet as a carpenter. He knows pain. He knows suffering. He knows what it means to get tired. He knows what it means to weep. All of it, he knows perfectly. Now, I'm going to tell you something that the Lord did, did with me a, a few years ago. I, this never dawned on me till like a few years ago. I used to sort of get bugged with that idea that Jesus can relate with me in all of life's, not in a, you know, a disobedient way, but I used to think to myself, wait a minute, I'm a husband and I'm a dad and I'm a man who has to provide for his family. And how could he have ever related with me as a husband? Or as a dad. And I thought, I, he can't sympathize with that. Yes, he can. Yes, he can. Joseph died very early, didn't he? Probably soon after this 12-year-old visit to the temple. Jesus is the firstborn son. Who has the responsibility of managing the house after dad dies? He does. He has younger brothers. He has sisters. He has to provide for his family. He has to provide for his mother. I believe for the next 18 years. Though not being a husband, officially, or not being a father, officially, he had to fulfill the responsibilities and roles of a husband and a father. And you better believe he knows the pressures of that. And I got to tell you, when I saw that, thank you, Lord. Yes. You can relate with the pressures I experience. And that is, folks, that's the beauty of our Savior. He can relate. We have a Savior who had a real childhood. We have a Savior who can relate with everything. In fact, um, have you ever heard of this concept called sympathetic resonance? Sympathetic resonance. Let's say we have two pianos up here, and I play the C note on one piano. If you go over and monitor the string of the C note on the other piano, it'll be vibrating. Sympathetic resonance. I think any time something hits our life, no matter what it might be as a human being. It resonates with our Savior and our High Priest. When the Scripture says He truly can relate with you, He can. And that's why you can go to Him with anything and pour out your heart to Him. Not only that, but we also have a Savior who did life perfectly. 
perfectly. And not only that, but we also have a Savior who offered his life at the cross at Calvary for all the rest of humanity that blew it. And we have a Savior who rose again the third day. And we have a Savior who's alive today. And we have a Savior who can save us and forgive us and wash away all of our sins. He can make us a child in his family. And he still is controversial. He is. But which side of the camp are you on? Let's close it right there. Would you bow your heads with me and close your eyes? Lord, so much mystery. And Lord, the greatest mystery really is not how it all worked, the mechanics of all it. The greatest mystery is the fact that you would do it. Why would you do it? Why would you leave heaven, come to earth, become man? Why would you offer your life? Why would you shed your blood? It's your love. It's your amazing grace. Lord, we uh, rejoice in our knowledge of you. For those of us here tonight who know you and love you, oh, we, we rejoice in you. We're so grateful for you. And I pray, Lord, that we would serve you every single day. We would live for you, that we would live to make you known. Thank you, Lord, that you can so truly relate with every one of the experiences that we go through. And you are our very present help in time of need. We thank you. Father, I want to pray for anyone here tonight who perhaps has never received the gift of salvation. Maybe you're here tonight and you've never opened up your heart. You've never received Christ into your life. The price, the cost, the sacrifice has been made so that lawbreakers can be forgiven, sinners can be forgiven. He paid the price. All of your sins can be atoned for. Have you received him? Have you put your faith in him? Have you made that decision? I would invite you to do it right now. Just say, the quietness of your heart, Lord, I bend the knee, I bow the head, I surrender my life.
You are the Lord. You love me. You've proven your love for me. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins and rising again. I invite you right now, wash away all my sins. Make me a child in your family. Give me the hope of heaven. Help me to follow you with every day that you give. In Jesus' name, amen.